Good morning. Our scripture scripture passage this morning is uh, Colossians chapter 1, verses 24 through 29. You can turn there in your Bibles, or you can find it there in your bulletin. Colossians chapter 1, verses 24 through 29. Hear now God's word. This is Paul speaking to the Colossians. He says this, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship of from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known the mystery hidden for ages and generations but now revealed to his saints to them God chose to make known how great among the gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery which is Christ in you the hope of glory him we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Please pray with me. Oh, Father, we come before you now and we ask for your blessing as we open your word. May you speak to us by your Holy Spirit. May you show us Christ, enlighten our eyes, soften our hearts, Lord, may we hear you speaking to us, and we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. As a former seminary student and hopeful, prospective minister of the gospel, I have heard and learned and was taught from my seminary professors that what you need to have What you need to know and what you will be asked about as you perhaps interview or stand before elders being interviewed for the office of elder is you need to know and you need to have a philosophy of ministry. And I remember always being a little bit unsure about what that entailed. Like, I have to bust out Kant and Hegel and all the philosophers and figure out You know, talk about dualism, ontological dualism, and monism. Is this the philosophy we're talking about? No, right? This is is where I, I was thinking, but philosophy of ministry is a lot more simple. It's basically just talking about or explaining what ministry ought to look like, what it ought to be about, what the priorities of ministry should be, what drives ministry, what's the goal of ministry. We should be able to know what that is. And here, in this passage, in a very concise form, even though in typical Pauline fashion, stacking words upon words upon words, Paul lays out his philosophy of ministry. And it's important for us to hear it because Paul's philosophy of ministry, though Paul had a unique ministry, His philosophy of ministry informs what ought to be our priorities of ministry, our goals, what we ought to look for in a faithful gospel ministry. And so 
we're going to look at that today to learn and to see what Paul has to say. Paul here at this point in his letters to Colossians, he gets really personal. He's been, he's been talking kind of generally about his ministry partners, saying, we pray for you, we hope this. And here he changes that and says, now I, this is what I want to say to you about my ministry. Now I rejoice in my sufferings. This is what my ministry is all about. Very personal for Paul. And it it informs um, what we are to be about as the church. And what what it shows us is that ministry revolves around this thing Paul calls the mystery of Christ. And so we're going to look, we're going to consider today two points. The first point we're going to look at Paul's philosophy of ministry. And so the first point is, on your outline if you're writing, the ministry. Paul's priorities, what it looked like for Paul, what his goals were. And the second point, we will consider the mystery. This is what is at the center of Paul's philosophy of ministry. And it's also what motivates him and sustains him as he goes about it. So let's begin by considering first the ministry that Paul lays out. And what we see in this text is that Paul's ministry is characterized by two things. It's characterized by Christ displaying suffering and by Christ-centered speech. Christ displaying suffering and Christ-centered speech. So consider Christ displaying suffering. We see this in verse uh, 24. Paul says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, the church. Now, if you're reading through this book and you come across this language, you realize right away this is kind of confusing language, right? that Paul says he's filling up what's lacking in Christ's afflictions. It makes it sound like Christ's afflictions are not enough for believers. And yet, we know for a fact that this is the one interpretation that is completely out of bounds. The one that Paul would say, heck no, that's not what I mean. Christ's suffering and death, his redemptive work is full and complete. What he did is enough. And that is the whole point of this letter to the Colossians that Paul wants to get across to say Christ's work cannot be supplemented. And so that's not what Paul means. It's not what he's talking about. So what is he talking about? Well, it's kind of complicated. It's kind of hard to know. It's complicated. A lot of people write a lot of words about it. Some people think it refers to what's called the messianic woes. And that really just refers to this this idea, this concept that really thinking about Christ and his afflictions, we need to think about the whole Christ, that is Christ and the afflictions he suffered in the body, in his person, and the afflictions of his corporate body, the church, and these constitute the whole sufferings of Christ, and that according to God's decree, there is a 
quota or an amount that must be filled up and completed before the end comes of sufferings, of the sufferings of Christ. And we see something like that taught in Revelation 6, where God tells the saints in heaven to wait a little while until the full number of the martyrs come in, basically. So that quota is not complete. And when it's complete, then the end will come. But that's not what Paul's talking about. Because Paul here, the word Paul uses, translated filling up, actually implies an action that is completed by Paul. It doesn't really imply an ongoing action. And Paul doesn't seem to think that the Colossians themselves participate with him in filling it up. Did you see that in the, in the text? He's doing it for them. And so if it were about the messianic woes, then all suffering of all believers would be contributing to this kind of um, amount. That's not what he has in mind. So what does he have in mind? Well, we need to consider that this is not the only place where Paul lays out his philosophy of ministry. He lays it out also in Ephesians 3, which we just read, and also in Romans 15, verses 14 through 21. These are parallel passages where Paul describes his unique commission as apostle to the Gentiles. And notably in Romans 15, Paul there quotes Isaiah as foundational for his ministry. A text in Isaiah, Isaiah 52:15, provides a foundational text for Paul's ministry calling. What does Isaiah 52:15 say? Well, it's talking about the servant of the Lord, the suffering servant. Isaiah 52, 15 is the last verse before Isaiah 53. And in Isaiah 52, 15, it says this, speaking of the servant, he shall sprinkle many nations. Kings, kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that, and this is what Paul quotes, for that which has not been told to them, they see, and that which they have not heard, they understand. And then Isaiah 53 goes on to speak of the suffering of the servant who will sprinkle many nations, how he will do that. So what Paul is doing, and what the, what we're, what's hinted at here, is that what Paul is doing is he's placing his unique apostolic calling within this servant prophecy of Isaiah. He's saying, my ministry is doing something that the servant is doing. And he does this again in Acts 13, 47, when Paul says this. He says, the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles. What? The Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light to the Gentiles? I thought Christ was the light to the Gentiles. So what Paul is saying here is that the Isaiah prophecy, when we look at the Isaiah prophecy in itself, it looks like one event, Christ's redemptive suffering, the accomplishment of redemption, and the display of that redemption to all the nations. When we read it, it's as if all the nations are gathered together to view the crucified one and see what's been put on, and it's displayed for all to see. But Paul says, in reality, that happens in two stages. First, the accomplishment in Jerusalem by Christ. 
and then the displaying and offering and extending of that redemptive accomplishment to the nations through Paul's ministry. That's what Paul is doing. That's Paul's role in the, in the plan of God. And so he says, I toil struggling with all his energy because Paul recognizes it's not I accomplishing this. It is Jesus displaying himself to the nations, a light to the Gentiles in and through me. So Paul, recognizing his calling to display the crucified one, he recognized that suffering would be a feature of this ministry. It would actually, his ministry would be stamped by and shaped by and would actually be validated by sufferings in the like manner of Christ. And so this is why when you read the Apostle Paul, he's constantly appealing to his sufferings. And he's constantly saying, you know, I'm boasting my sufferings. And he compares his suffering ministry to the ministry of these so-called apostles who are puffing themselves up and who are boasting in their successes, right? Because suffering is validating his ministry. It makes it clear who he's serving, the crucified one. This is why he says in Galatians 6, 17, from now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. So Paul's ministry is characterized by suffering and affliction as a personal display of the cross that he preached. And what that means for us is that even though Paul's ministry is a very unique ministry, his calling to the Gentiles is a missionary calling, and not every one of us has this same missionary calling. Yet it reminds us that a life dedicated in service to the Lord Jesus will also be marked by the cross. It will be marked by the cross. The Christian life is marked by the cross. The call to follow Jesus comes with a cross. And even though we may struggle under the weight of it, we ought not be surprised by it. And when we hold fast to Jesus in the midst of suffering and through suffering, we display his sufficiency, which is what Paul was all about. He loved displaying the sufficiency of Christ's grace in and through his weakness. When we hold fast to Jesus in our weakness, we display the power of Christ, who is able to renew inwardly, renew the inner man, while the outer is fading away and getting weaker and weaker. And so we learn from Paul here that genuine gospel ministry is not glamour. It is shaped by the cross. And the second thing we learn is that a genuine gospel ministry, a genuine, a, a God-glorifying ministry of philosophy is all about Christ-centered speech. Paul's stewardship was of a particular kind. It, it consisted of speaking a lot. He used a lot of words. He says in, in verse 25 that his stewardship was to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden 
for ages and generations, but now revealed to the saints. And what is that mystery? Christ in you. Christ is the mystery. Verse 28, him we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may, we may present everyone mature in Christ. So Paul's ministry was a word ministry, and it provides a pattern for the church and the centrality of the word ministry of the church. It provides a pattern especially for pastors who are called to shepherd the church, the flock of God, by the ministry of the word, by devoting themselves to it. But it is also instructive for anyone who handles the word of God. From children's ministry leaders, to women's ministry, to one another discipleship, all who handle the word of God can learn from what Paul says about the centrality of Christ in the word of God, in the word ministry. What Paul says here is that he considered it his number one job to make the word of God fully known, which meant expounding and making clear this thing called the mystery of Christ. The mystery of Christ, which is Christ in you, we said. And the riches of it. Why is Christ called a mystery? It's not because Christ is intended to remain mysterious. We don't come to church and do all these ritual acts and these cloudy you know, ceremonies and things and speak really esoteric words about some mystery we don't really know about. We can't get our fingers on. We can't get our minds around at all. That's not what this is about. That's not what Christian ministry is about. It's about making a mystery plain and clear. And the mystery is Christ. It's called a mystery because he was for a time shrouded. He was for a time hidden, right? He was for a time visible to the eyes of faith only through shadowy promises and shadowy types and symbols in the Old Testament. In 1 Peter, Peter says that the Old Testament prophets strained their eyes to see, to catch a glimpse of the sufferings and the future glories of the Messiah. Then God's grace was hidden, veiled in a sense, behind temple veil, stationed in one place. But now, now all the fullness of God's grace and glory is shining in the face of Jesus Christ and shining upon all people, available, offered to all people. And this is the climax of the great biblical story. And so part of, the, of a genuine ministry of the word is the unfolding of this mystery, the story of the mystery, right? We can't really understand who Jesus is if we don't know the story of how Jesus, of what Je- the story that Jesus fulfills. And we, don't, we can't pick up our Bibles and really understand the story unless we have Jesus. These two things go together, right? You cannot, if you... Think about watching a movie. If you, if you step into a movie and you, and you watch it for a little while and then you step out before the main character is revealed, you understand that movie? And, and if you 
you know, step into a movie, you know, after everyone's, everyone else in the living room's been sitting there and watching it and they're invested and you just step in and you watch the fight scene at the end with the main character, you're like, oh yeah, I got that movie. No, you don't. You don't understand what happened. You don't feel the weight of it. And so these two things go together. This is what Paul was all about, expounding, explaining, making clear the mystery. So he asked the Colossians, pray for me in chapter 4. He says that I may declare the mystery of Christ and make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. His ministry, a word ministry, was all about Jesus, making him clear everything seen in relation to him, everything subordinated to him. Him we proclaim. He says elsewhere, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. We preach Christ crucified. That's Paul's philosophy of ministry. And a genuine ministry of the word will keep Christ at the center. His person and his work and all that that means for us. And so Paul says, we proclaim Christ and we teach, we expound. But he also says, we warn, we admonish. And so we learn from this that a genuine gospel ministry also doesn't just explain the riches of Christ, but warns people of what it means to reject this Christ. It warns that you will not find another Christ. You will not find another Savior. And the self-salvation project is doomed for failure. And that if you do not have Christ, you stand under the righteous wrath of a holy and good God unless you repent. A faithful gospel ministry will warn unbelievers and it will also warn and admonish believers whose walk is out of step with the gospel. We see Paul doing this very thing in Galatians 2 when he calls Peter, of all people, out for his hypocrisy. He says, you're not walking in step with the gospel by separating yourself from the Gentiles the way that you're doing. And he calls him out. He didn't fear Peter because Peter was a pillar of the church. He warned him. He admonished him. said, stop it. He didn't speak to please man. And a faithful gospel ministry will not speak man-pleasing words. 1 Thessalonians 2.4, Paul says, As we have been approved by God and entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. And so powerful people do not get a special immunity from the word of Christ. Popular people don't. Ministry leaders don't. Big tithers don't get special immunity. Pastors don't get special immunity, but must submit to the word of Christ in the mouth of their fellow elders and even of the congregation. 
we all stand under the same word and the same Christ whom we proclaim. This is a faithful philosophy of ministry that Paul lays out. It consists of Christ displaying suffering and Christ-centered speech. And Paul also then takes us to really what this is all revolves around. What is the goal of a gospel-centered, Christ-centered ministry? What's at the center is, and what drives Paul, the motivation is to present everyone mature in Christ. In Christ. And what that means is that everyone grows in an understanding of the mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. That we all come to a deeper, growing appreciation, understanding of, and learn to walk in the power of that reality. And so that is the mystery. And so we'll spend the rest of our time considering the mystery. The mystery. Verse 27, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We can call this the indwelling Christ. This is a mysterious thing. Right? When we think of what indwells believers, is Christ the first thing that comes to your mind? I think the Spirit, right? We've been indwelt by the Spirit. And these two things are not to be pitted against each other because they are very much bound up together. Uh, we can see this beginning, this, the revelation of what the Spirit actually does in bringing Christ in us. We see that in, uh, beginning to be revealed in John's Gospel when the disciples are around the table with Jesus and he's saying, listen, I'm going to go away. I'm not always going to be here with you in the flesh. But he says this in John 16, 7, it's better for you that I go away. How could it possibly be better for Jesus in the flesh to go away? He says, because I'm going to send you another helper who will be in you and with you. Another helper, the Holy Spirit. And he says this, he says, I will not leave you orphans, but I will come to you. And this is what he's referring to, the Spirit that will be sent to them, to be in them. Listen to what Paul says about the Spirit, the indwelling Spirit in Romans 8, verses 9 and 10. He says this, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, Although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. Notice how Paul just naturally interchanges here the spirit that indwells believers, and then he says, but if Christ be in you, how can he say that? The spirit is not the son, right? We believe in trinity and trinity in unity. The Spirit is not the Father, nor is the Spirit the Son. There is a distinction between the persons, and yet there is a unity with regard to this ministry of the Spirit, a unity of identity here. And this is what Sinclair Ferguson says in kind of just summing up after doing a whole bunch of theological, exegetical, heavy lifting. He sums up the ministry of the Spirit by saying this, that we can say, quote, the Spirit has been imprinted with the character of Jesus. 
end quote. And that spirit has been implanted in us. So this is what this means. This is the glorious mystery that Paul lives to talk about and wants us as believers to mature in and grow in and and get that the riches of Christ's person, all that he is, along with all of his redemptive accomplishment, has been imprinted upon the Spirit. The Spirit's been implanted within us, imprinting Christ upon us. It's not biology. It's a Holy Spirit reality in the very depths of our being and our inmost selves, touching on our identity. Right? You don't always you don't feel Christ moving around in you, but Christ is in you. It's an objective reality. And we can, as believers, learn to claim all of the grace that comes along with that reality, such that we can grow in our experience of it. And we can live in the power of it. It's not something that depends on our feelings. It's true of all who place their hope in Christ, and it informs our feelings. It pulls us out of certain feelings and into new ones that are there waiting for us, in us, that are unshakable. Christ comes to inhabit the very foundation of our lives, touching on our identity. What that means is he inhabits all the spaces of your story that define your identity. He inhabits it. He covers it and places his story underneath it such that his story gets the last word. So Paul can say, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. All the riches of Christ have been imprinted upon us and sealed to us by the Spirit. Listen to one more quote by Herman Bavinck, a truly great Reformed theologian. Just love him. Listen to these words. We often think of the, redemption, the riches of Christ and the merits of Christ in some kind of abstract way, like they're floating out there, Right, or they're kind of they're kind of in some storehouse somewhere that we need to get to them, dig them out, whatever. He thinks he's he says this. He says, There is no sharing in the benefits of Christ unless we share in his person. And the benefits of Christ are not stored up. They are and deposited somewhere on earth in the hands, say, of Pope or priest or in church, or sacrament. It is found exclusively in Christ himself. He is that treasury. In him the Father turns his friendly, gracious face to us, and that is all our salvation. That person of Christ is the treasury, and that treasury has been placed within us by the Spirit, and it's a there's a twofold mystery here, right? Because Paul says he wants us to meet to reach maturity in Christ. And that maturity revolves around knowing that Christ is in us. 
the twofold mystery is this mutual indwelling that we are in Christ and he is in us. And this is what the Spirit does, bonding us together with the risen Christ such that your life is hidden with Christ in God and his life is hidden within you. And this is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. It's unshakable. It is a secure bond. Apart from the person of Christ, we are dead, broken off branches with no life in us whatsoever. No spiritual life, no spiritual good, no benefits can be gotten apart from Christ. But with Christ in us, we have everything. Christ is all in all. He's everything. And we have the fullness in us. We have Christ. And so, brothers and sisters, what does this mean for us? What does this mean for gospel ministry? This is why. It means that this is why we preach Christ week in and week out. There's a lot we could talk about for an hour. But we talk about Jesus Christ crucified, and we tell the story over and over again because, so we can understand it and so we can come to realize what has been placed within us and given to us. What we have. It means we belong to Christ, body and soul, and He belongs to us. We are bound up with Him, never to be separated. What God has joined together who can separate it? It means he has not left us orphans in this world. The same Christ who suffered for us is with us and in us by the Spirit. And he will sustain us through the worst. And he will bring us through death's door and bring us to himself. He is at work within us, struggling with all his energy. And it means we have al- you already have everything you need available to you, all the resources that we need for life and godliness are ours. We have them now to draw from, to pull out treasure upon treasure upon treasure, to sink into it means we have, we have all of this now. He is that treasury. He is within us. His fullness is the ground beneath our feet. When we feel restless, when we feel sad, when we feel dirty and worthless, he is the peace that we long for, and he is within us. He is unshakable peace. He is unshakable joy. He is pure holiness He is the love that we often lack, and he is ours, full and free, to draw from, to be sustained by, to grow in. This is this glorious mystery. And so it is Christ we proclaim. He is worth it. He is worth the cross that comes with the call to follow this Christ. So brothers and sisters, though the world be in turmoil, 
be encouraged. You have Christ in you, the hope of glory. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the riches of grace that are ours in Christ, that you, by the Spirit, have given to us, that we have adoption because of Christ, the Son of your love. Lord, help us to know and to be assured, to grow in assurance of the great inheritance that we have and all the riches of resources we have, Lord, that we would draw from it this week. Help us to look to Christ and trust in him alone and strengthen us in our weakness and in our weakness, Lord, remind us that we're okay because we have you. We have Christ. Lord, remind us of that this week. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.